0: You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Great to have you here, and then welcome to everyone in person, too. Um, I'm hoping to have some discussions. So again, if the people online want to have their voice in the discussion, just text it and David will read it out. So that's great. Okay, let me pray. God, I thank you uh, for your word, and I thank you for the way you communicate to us. And I pray tonight we will be able to hear your voice and your word and respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're uh, doing three chapters this week, which I heard is way better than last week when you did (laughs) seven. So so just as a show of hands, how many people were able to read chapters 18 to 20 ahead of time great so many of you will know what i'm talking about already and if you didn't read it then you're gonna i'm hopefully i'll say enough that you can get it and so so king hezekiah reigned um from around 715 to 687 bc and part of his time, he ruled. He was a co-regent. So that meant he ruled some of the time with his dad and some of the time with his son. And so sometimes when you try and add up the numbers in kings, I don't know if David's mentioned this, they don't always work because they might list a person's whole reign and their reigns were overlapping. And um, so it looks like Hezekiah co-reigned with his father for a while and then became the sole ruler of Israel in 715 Um BCE. So some this is a very unique and interesting passage because it's recorded three times in the Bible, this story. So it's in Second Chronicles 29 to 32, Isaiah 36 to 39, and then Hosea is. I mean, Hezekiah is also referred to in four other books in the Bible, in Proverbs, Jeremiah, Hosea, and Micah. And then there are quite a few um, other biblical sources that refer to Hezekiah. Um, which again is very unusual, and um, so it's recorded in um, some of the Assyrian annals and reliefs, and, um, and this story is one of the best documented events in the Iron Age. So that's really interesting, so I will be maybe doing a little bit more history, but this here is uh, the Rassam Cylinder, and it's called, also called the Taylor um, Prism, and it's found at the British Museum. And it actually records some of the story from this Assyrian perspective. So, I'm
1: talking about Bible. I was going
0: to share that with you. Okay, well, I ruined it for you. Uh, <laughs> so, so again, obviously, and um, Ian Proven points this out, um, but hi- this is history with a point of view. And the Assyrian text has a point of view, which is different than the Hebrews would have, a point of view on the story. And so again, each of, each of the storytellers are trying to tell the story from their perspective. And of course, we believe that the scriptures were inspired by God, and so God superseded. And what is recorded is what God wanted us to know and understand from a theological perspective about the, the events. But interestingly enough, the events, as recorded in the Assyrian um, text, don't conflict with what's in the Bible. They're pretty similar. There's some details that are in theirs that aren't in ours and and again it's not a story where you're like, oh who's telling the truth? They're both telling the truth but just from a different perspective. So so let's briefly look at 2 Kings 18 um, and I'm going to read from verses 1 to 8 because this is really important stuff in the text. So In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abiah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze stake Moses had made, For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. Okay, so this introduction to Hezekiah is a really important introduction because it tells us what kind of king Hezekiah was. And he was the best of the kings. He was so good, he was like David. And he was faithful and the Lord was with him. AND THAT HELPS US UNDERSTAND THE STORY. SO, he FIRST OF ALL, HE DID WHAT WAS RIGHT. AND SO, AS YOU KNOW FROM READING THROUGH KINGS SO FAR, EACH KING GETS AN ANALYSIS. THEY DID WHAT WAS RIGHT IN THE EYES OF THE LORD OR THEY DID NOT DO WHAT WAS RIGHT IN THE EYES OF THE LORD. AND SO Hezekiah DID WHAT WAS RIGHT, NOT UNLIKE HIS FATHER, WHO PROBABLY uh, DAVID MENTIONED LAST WEEK. HE DID NOT. And so the first thing Hezekiah did that was right in the eyes of the Lord is he destroyed all the places of idolatry. So he removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and removed the Asherah pole. And in all the story of the kings, Hezekiah was the only one to remove the high places up until this point. And so, again, I'm just going to share the screen again here. This is an example of a high place. Now, this is a high place in Israel, but this is um, Jeroboam's high place in Dan. So you can see there it is. And the high places weren't necessarily places of idolatry. They were places people could sacrifice to Yahweh as well, but they were tempting for people to sacrifice to other gods on them. And so one of the reasons um, it was seen as good to remove the high places is so that people wouldn't be tempted to sacrifice to Baal or Asherah um, in those places Okay, so Hezekiah Takes control he removes the high places He smashes the sacred stones again another place you could worship and you guys know about the Asherah poles um, and he gets rid of those and then he um, It was interesting when when they mentioned this um, they add the writer adds an emphatic he. so it was he it was who removed the high places and so there's a real emphasis on how great hezekiah was for doing that he was really unique he is a hero He is the hero probably of this book though josiah also becomes a hero later on now something that he did after he got rid of all those things it says that he he broke the the nehushtan and so i'm just going to briefly read for you um, numbers 21 4 to 9. And so some of you would be familiar with this story. But the people in the wilderness were getting really tired of the, the trials of the wilderness. And they were, um, they were angry at God. They were complaining that they didn't have the things they wanted. They didn't have bread or water. And so they, in verse 6, um, it says, "...the Lord sent venomous snakes among them, bit the people, and the Israelites died." And the people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made the snake, put it on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. And so, again, the idea of this was, again, that God was asking them to look at the snake, remember, likely, their sin and God's provision and then they would be saved and so it appears that they took that snake and they put it in the temple along with other holy objects like the ark of the covenant and what what it looks like is at different occasions in the Israelite history instead of recognizing god behind the snake they began to worship the snake and so in order to again prevent them from doing that again you know, you're like, ooh, that's a really great artifact, and Hezekiah smashed it, but he smashed it, and uh, then they were no longer tempted to worship the snake. Um, and, and so I wonder, so I wanted, I wanted to just sit for a moment and, and ask this question. So Moses had made the snake as a sign, a means of God's healing and a sign of God's presence with them, and yet the people took it and they began to worship the snake. So, what are some other examples um, in Scripture of God's gifts becoming idols? Can you think of any other examples of that? Like
2: Wealth.
0: Yeah. Wealth, so if God gave people money, they idolized it, for sure. The Ark of the Covenant was sometimes treated that way too, as sort of a tellism that if you had it, you would win, and if you didn't have it, you would lose. Any other things you guys can think of? I mean, sex would probably be something like that too, right? A gift from God that becomes an idol.
2: You said that golden calf? Yeah. Because it is God's creation. Yeah. Children? The one that Aaron
0: made? Yeah. So then, think about today. Are there any things you can think of today that we might do the same things with? Something God has given us as a gift, and then we begin to idolize it. The Bible. Bible? <laughs> can Bible. you explain that, David?
2: Yeah. Um, can you guys hear me if I speak loudly? Yeah. Um, I think, as Protestants, we fall into Bibology in the sense that we focus so much on the book that we forget the author who has revealed his word. And so we see the Bible as almost having special power. Uh, the Bible can do this, and you don't do, you know, you got to treat your Bible well because the Bible is almost um, magic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think sometimes, yeah, we can make the Bible into an idol and miss the author behind it.
0: Okay. Good. Mm-hmm. Prayer. Ah, I was thinking yes, of that too
1: approach God
0: asking him to grab what we want. Right. And like one of my favorite
1: books I read was uh, Ruth Graham's Autobiography.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Her prayer was that she could learn to pray without ceasing. Hmm. And what she meant was ask God before you what He has planned for you next or hmm. what He wants you. Mm But we probably need to, as we gather together, to emphasize that.
0: Mm -hmm. Because we
1: quite often pray amongst ourselves asking for giving personal
0: things. Right. And if we get our prayer right, God has to answer. Right? If we pray the magic healing words, then God has to answer. So that prayer can become that. And again, prayer is a gift of God to connect with God, to hear from God and to bring our petitions before god yeah yeah
2: so somebody wrote spiritual gifts
0: spiritual gifts yeah where they're given to for us to serve the church and instead we can use them to build ourselves up um so we are important for sure yeah
1: yeah you know, yeah yeah
0: yep yep yeah we make ourselves entitled, so again, interesting, Hezekiah smashes all these places, but he still has himself, <laughs> and everybody else still has themselves, and idolatry, as you know, is uh, this big Uh, this big risk um, for all of us, right, with anything, with ourselves, with our money, with any good thing that God gives us. And so I think that snake, smashing the snake is a reminder of that, that God's gifts can become idols in our lives. Okay, so in summary, and verses 18 to one to eight really summarize who Hezekiah was. So in summary, Hezekiah trusted in in the Lord God of Israel. There was no one like him amongst all the kings of Israel, before him or after him, obviously David. He held fast to the Lord. That's the text says that. Another translation I read is like he hugged the Lord. Like, he was very close and connected to the Lord. That's what that means. And he did not stop following him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, which, again, is high praise, right? The people had failed to keep the commands from Moses. And so the text says the Lord was with him. And again, so he wasn't simply one king in a line of kings. There was no one like him. He was a special person. And this is said of Josiah as well, who will be a little bit later in the book. And, and that's because Hezekiah deeply trusted the Lord. He lo- he was loyal to the God of Israel, and he listened to the Lord's prophets, which, again, was very different than the other kings you've seen, where the prophets show up to sh- chew them out. He actually sought the prophet's advice, um, and he has this personal, connected, hugging relationship with Yahweh. Um, and another thing unique about Hezekiah that we'll see coming up is he rejects foreign influences. He rejects his father's policies, which are pro Assyria policies. So his, his father was kind of in bed with the Assyrians. And so what Hezekiah does at this point is he rebels against the king of Assyria. He stops serving him, he stops paying whatever tribute he's supposed to pay to him. And uh, this puts Israel or Judah in a lot of trouble and that's the rest of the story comes out of Hezekiah's decision not to serve the king of Assyria and so what had happened is under Ahaz the um, the king of Assyria who at that time was Tiglath-Pileser III and he reigned from 734 to seven or and around there he somewhere around 734 or 732 he kind of moves into the region And he, Aram falls to him, and Damascus falls to him, later Israel falls to him, but Judah avoids it because they pay tribute instead. So, um, and when Hezekiah takes over, he again breaks that covenant or the relationship he had with the king of Assyria. Now, the consequences... um, right away seem really good. So right away he's got some military things going on and, and Hezekiah moves into the Philistine territory and he begins to take more territory for Israel, for Judah. And interestingly, the only other king who was able to take the Philistines was David. So he's like David. He's moving into the Philistine territory. He's successful in war and, um, and he, so things are going really well. But on the world stage, what's happening at the same time is Assyria has battles going on uh, on other fronts. The Babylonians are also rebelling. And so Assyria is kind of busy. They are not worried about little Palestine. They're taking on the Babylonians. And so finally, in um, in about, um, and I'll talk about this in a minute, about 702, um, the Babylonian, or 705, the Babylonian battle is cleared up and then Asterius starts looking at Hezekiah again and that's where the story starts. But in verses 9 to 12, there's a very a, there's a very little digression and what's happening is um, the writer records the judgment on Israel and it's interesting because this was actually recorded in chapter 17 so it's being repeated right here in the text. Why do you think they might have repeated the judgment this um, judgment on Israel at this point? Yeah, to high the importance of it. yeah, the yeah, importance and also the contrast with Hezekiah, right? So, it, Judah's doing well, Israel is falling. And so in 709, Sargon Second comes in, and they take away about 27,000 people and take them into captivity. At least that's what the Assyrians claim in their records. And so they, they're they reminding us again that Israel decides not to obey the Lord, so they get taken away, whereas Judah decides to obey the Lord, and they are taking new territory in the Philistine territory. And so the key theological claim there is in verse 12. Um, and I'm wondering if someone else could read verse 12, because I'm reading a lot. So Andrea, do you mind? Do you have your Bible there? Do you mind reading verse 12? Sure. This
1: happened Bible-
0: So, again, so the opposite of Hezekiah, who obeyed all Moses' commandments. These guys don't obey Moses' commandments, and they're carried off into captivity. So that's why it's repeated in the story of Judah. So, we move on to 2 Kings, um, starting in about verse um, Verse 17. So... um, the king of Assyria realizes that Judah is not paying tribute. He turns his eye on them and he comes to attack them. And so at this point Sargon the has died and the new ruler is taken over. The new ruler is Sennacherib. He takes over in 705 BCE and he rules till 681. And again he's been dealing with various rebellions but he comes towards now the Middle East, and he crushes Tyre, he moves into Philistia, to Ammon, to Moab, to Edom, and then he moves into the area of Judah. And so this, this rebellious path that Hezekiah is on of not paying tribute is about to come to fruition. And so what Assyria does first is they, take, they capture Ashdod, and I'm going to just again show you guys where are we? So here we are. Here is, do you see Ashdod? I've got my little arrow there, which is probably too small. So Ashdod is over here. It's part part of Philistine. So they go after Ashdod, and then they start making their way towards Jerusalem. And they go to Lachish, and Lachish is part of Judah. And this is a, um, I don't know what you call it. It's a... It's a, like a wall thing that, whatever they carved in the wall. And again, I think it's in the British Museum. The Brits took a lot of things back <laughs> to. Uh, and you can see Sennacherib sitting on the throne there. And he's captured Lachish, and they're celebrating the capture. And this is uh, another uh, tribute to that. Oh, where is it? There, sorry, it's in the wrong order. There it is. And that's them carrying away the Judites into captivity. Um, So it's really interesting. So they're recording the deportation of the captives at Lachish here. Um, So they're off um, on the way. So obviously Hezekiah is hearing about this. He's hearing about um, they're moving through from Ashdod to Lachish, and now they're approaching Jerusalem. And so Hezekiah gets worried, and he decides to pay tribute. (laughs) Okay, so he wants to pay tribute, and so he goes and he takes... um, He takes everything he can find, um, he strips all the gold off of the temple, and he gives it to the king of Assyria in order to, like, pay him what he owes him. And in the ancient Near East, when these things are recorded and a king pays another king, that's considered your debt is paid and they don't, they just leave usually. But king... Sennacherib is not happy with how Hezekiah has been acting and so he decides to keep going. And he doesn't he accepts the tribute and then he decides he wants to take Jerusalem. He's going to squelch this rebellion.
1: Reading this, I I don't understand why God wasn't upset with him for not trusting God.
0: Who who was oh why Hezekiah did that?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's an interesting question, but there's no judgment in the text over it. Not, not a bit. So, yeah, we don't know, but apparently it was okay that he did that. So he paid the tribute, and um, and then basically the king of Assyria didn't accept the tribute, and so he, the king of Assyria surrounds the city, and he sends his three. He sends three of his people to talk to um, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, instead of coming out and receiving these three people, he sends three of his people. And so in a way, he's saying, like, I, you're not my boss. Like, I'm going to send my people to talk to your people. And so let's go to um, verse 19. And so the, the field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says, On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On who who are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God... Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. how can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials even though you were depending on egypt for chariots and horsemen furthermore have i come to attack and destroy this place without word from the lord the lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it so now I'm going to just stop there for a moment, and that, it's a pretty amazing argument they put forth, right? And interestingly enough, um, historians would say that is kind of how the Assyrians talk. So they think they've captured pretty accurately what these Assyrians might have said. And so what are the things they are attacking there? I do have it in my notes, but what do you hear? So they're there so yeah your, your allies are yeah not your allies aren't that, yeah, that great now interesting again it doesn't look like there's any evidence that they were allying themselves with egypt so maybe assyria was just covering their bases just in case but yeah your allies yeah, are no I good
1: didn't
0: even think it. yeah <laughs> that's another thing
1: it seems like all this diplomacy though that they really don't have military backing and they're kind of hedging their bets going really not sure if they want to attack mm-hmm. Judah in the first place, so let's try to
0: Yeah, maybe they didn't want to lose their troops either. I don't uh, know. That's true, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I think it's a guy who's a
0: bit hasty wow. on getting in so easily with the, but the yeah. of the and uh, stuff. So they attack their allies, or what they think their allies might be. Well, who else do they attack? What else do they...? Well, they Sorry, Sorry? God.
1: Trying to see the God.
0: Yeah, and I think even they do it even more twisted. Like Hezekiah removed the high places because of his, like, his loyalty to God, and yet they're twisting that and and saying that it was that God won't respond to them because they've removed the high places, and that's the place where people could worship God. Yeah.
2: yeah and they the lie. Yeah. saying that uh, the God Himself. Told me yeah, to come up against
0: you. Yeah. you can trust me because God told me to do it. Yeah, and again, if you've read the book of uh, some of the prophets, God did actually send people to take Israel and Judah and to cause, the, to discipline them. But again, this was not what happened here, that God didn't send Assyria here. There's no evidence for that. And um, so then they go on... Um, to say that apparently they're speaking in Hebrew. And we don't know how some Assyrians learned Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. But the the commanders are worried because they don't want the people to hear these arguments because they must be pretty good arguments, right? So, shh, speak to us in Aramaic, and then we'll just translate it for the people. And so they refuse to speak in um, Aramaic, and so they speak in Hebrew. And then they address the people who would be able to hear them maybe the the fighters on the ramparts I don't know people in the in the town and they and they say um these things starting in verse 27 um was it only um to your master that you that and you that my master sent me to say these things and not to the people sitting on the wall who like you will have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine Uh, that's that's going to make people a little bit worried right there Uh, then the commander stood and called out in hebrew hear the word of the great king the king of assyria this is what the king says do not let hezekiah deceive you he cannot deliver you from my hand do not let hezekiah persuade you to trust in the lord when he says the lord will surely deliver us this city will not be given into the hand of the king of assyria do not listen to hezekiah this is what the king of assyria says make peace with me and come out to me then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until i come and take you to a land like your own a land of grain and new wine a land of bread and vineyards a land of olive trees and honey choose life and not death do not listen to hezekiah for he's misleading you when he says the lord will deliver us has the god of any nation ever delivered his, hand, his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Savarvaim, Hina and Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? So again, some more arguments. So. This time, they're saying, Hezekiah is untrustworthy. You can't trust your king. He's, his military capabilities aren't up to scratch. His theology isn't very good. He doesn't know who God is. He has, he's making empty promises of a new and better life. And he, he, and then Yahweh, he's not as strong as the Assyrian gods. So why are you trusting in Yahweh? Every other god has been taken down. Um, and I, Sennacherib, can save you. And um, so, again, this is the question posed throughout the Book of Kings. Who's more powerful? Is the God of Israel more powerful than the God of the surrounding nations? And I think it's really interesting when he describes what he's offering, right? He's offering them this new land of milk and honey, right? This new Israel. Come with me, and I can give you everything that you want. And, uh, and I thought those are really interesting words. And of course, they're lies, right? There's no way the king of Assyria is going to give Judah this amazing land and life experience, but he uses these lies. So I think I want to stop there just for a moment, because I think this is something that still happens today. It's not the king of Assyria, but the, the evil one uses these kind of lies to trick us into thinking it will be better somewhere else, right? It's going to be God isn't really going to come through for us. There's something better. There's a, a promised land that we're not experiencing. Um, yeah, we can't follow our leaders. We don't trust them. Um, and we look for, for something else. Um, this is something we're still tempted to do. And it's interesting, the people uh, at that time recognized the lies, maybe because they had a good leader and they were silent and they went into mourning. They didn't um, believe the Assyrians, but but I wonder if we can just take a moment to think about some examples of the way the, en- the enemy attacks us now, and how might we respond. So they responded with silence and mourning, um, and how might we respond? So you just go to your tables, take about five minutes, talk about some ways the enemy attacks us now. What are some of the lies that you are hearing in our culture, um, and how, how do they tempt you, and how might you respond? Pause it. Yeah, just pause it. Because oh, uh, I think that's probably different, right? Like, what what, what um, gets you? What makes you start to doubt that God is there or God will provide for you? I think it's important ahead of time to think of some of those things. Because I think the Assyrians, interestingly enough, probably knew what people who were in the middle of a siege would be afraid of, right? Like drinking your own urine and eating excrement. That's a real fear. That's not a fear for us. So I don't think that would work. But uh, it's, you know, the Satan loses lies that actually do trick us and convince us that God is not good and God will not provide for us. Okay, so when, so when the people here, they tear their clothes and Hezekiah tears his clothes. So let's start again in um, chapter 19, verse 1. And when Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and went went into the temple of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. So again, this is a very unique move, right? He's actually going to seek the prophet for advice. And they told him, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when the children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear all the words of the field commander whom the master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. When King Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says, do not be afraid of what you have heard. These words, with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me, listen, when he hears a certain report, I will make him want to return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. And when the, so again, so, um, So there's the promise, right? God says, don't be afraid. I am going to deal with Sennacherib. And that is a a very clear response. Um, So Hezekiah has this very humble posture before the Lord. He's in mourning. He rips his clothes. He goes and seeks the Lord's advice. And um, Hezekiah has a choice to make at this point. And maybe he should have done this sooner before he gave away the tribute but now he's he has this choice to make of is he going to trust the lord's promises or is he going to listen to sennacherib and surrender um, and so something very interesting happens at this point it's so very quick in this in the passage in verse nine um it seems like sennacherib briefly leaves and he goes, and so maybe Hezekiah's is like, "Ooh, this is a good deal." And so he goes down, um, and in the historical records, he temporarily leaves to deal with a problem in Ethiopia. And so there's a guy down in Ethiopia. He's a he later becomes the pharaoh, but his name is Tirharka, and he's uh, fomenting rebellion. So Seneca believes briefly quells that rebellion and then comes back (laughs) so he comes back we find him back in verse 9 and it says Sennacherib receives a report that so he receives that report and then he comes back and in verse 10 it says say to King Hezekiah of Judah do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria and then he makes some more of his arguments of why Hezekiah should be afraid of him And so starting in verse 14, Hezekiah responds again. And this time he doesn't go to Isaiah, but this time he actually goes directly to God. And in verse 14, when he receives the letter from the messengers with all these new threats from Sennacherib, he goes to the temple, he spreads the letter out before the Lord, the letter from Sennacherib, and he prays to the lord lord the god of israel enthroned between the cherubim you alone are god over all the kingdoms of the earth you have made heaven and earth give ear lord and hear open your eyes lord and see listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living god it is true lord that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations in these lands they have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wooden stone fashioned by human hands. Now, Lord our God, deliver us from His hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, our are Lord, are, you alone, Lord, are God. And so what Hezekiah is doing here is he is, um, he's praying what is called in the style of uh, individual complaint psalm. And you can read psalms like this in the book of Psalms. Um, And the psalms have a pattern, and Hezekiah is following the pattern. And so first of all, he recognizes God's greatness. He refers to the Ark of the Covenant. He refers to God's rulership. And then he explains his problem. And it's interesting how he explains his problem, because his problem is very oriented towards God. The problem, God, is that the Assyrians are insulting you. The Assyrians are not recognizing who you are, as opposed to the Assyrians are threatening me, which is an interesting way that he is... and then he asks for God's assistance based on God's honor. He recognizes that it's it's Israel's responsibility to bring glory to God, and the Assyrians are keeping him from being able to do that. And so that is his complaint to God. God And I think it's a really beautiful picture of him going to the temple with the letter, putting the letter out, and then falling down and and asking God to um, to honor, to act so that his name is honored. And so, yeah, I don't know if you guys have any comments on that. And again, you mentioned that prayer can be idolatrous, but I think this is the opposite of an idolatrous prayer. This is a prayer that's a, a really heartfelt prayer. A prayer that recognizes who God is, where Hezekiah isn't demanding something from God. It's not a magical incantation, but it is really coming from his heart. And I wanted us to each take five minutes and write our own complaint song. So whatever is on your heart, it may be an issue in Canada that you're worried about. It may be something in your personal life that you feel like God is not being honored. Um, but I want you to try and follow um this complaint psalm script so first recognize god's greatness so the beginning of your psalm would recognize who god is then secondly you are going to explain your problem to god maybe it's a newspaper clipping you want to pull out or you have your own letter in your pocket of a financial issue that's happening to you and then ask for god's assistance and at the heart of this complaint psalm is a desire to see God glorified, a desire to see God worshipped and honoured uh, in your life, in our lives. How does that sound? Do you guys think you can do it? So I am here. If you're stuck, I'm happy to help. And David can help too. Do
2: to I pause okay? Pause? Yeah.
0: Uh, share their psalms in the chat they were great and some of your psalms will be personal but um, is there anyone here who would be comfortable reading their psalm no no one (laughs) okay maybe you're all personal so that's great but again this is a great practice Um, And so when I first was a new Christian, I was mentored by someone who taught me to pray the psalms. And it was a really uh, great experience as I learned the pattern of prayer of the people of God. And it gives us confidence like these, the psalms are prayers that God includes in his word. And so those are ways to teach us how to pray. So so again, Hezekiah's prayer is a model for us of what prayer might look like. Okay, we're moving on. to uh, a lovely speech from god and it's a pretty powerful speech and so god responds um, to um hezekiah by sending isaiah again to give a word and david it's very long and my throat is getting sore do you think you could read it it's uh verses 20 to uh 34. sure okay well, that is a long one yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it's great. Okay, so when you're listening to this, I want you to write down any themes or messages you hear as David reads it. Okay, so you're listening for themes or messages.
2: Then Isaiah, the son of Amos said, said sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard this is a word the lord has spoken concerning him she she despises you she scorns you the virgin daughter of zion she wags her head behind you the daughter of jerusalem whom have you mocked and reviled against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights against the holy one of israel by your messengers you have mocked the lord And you have said with my many chariots i've gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of lebanon i felt the tallest cedars its choicest cypresses i entered the farthest lodging place its most fruitful forest i dug wells and drank foreign waters and i dried up with the sole of my foot all the streams of egypt have you not heard that i determined it long ago I planned from days of old what I should now bring to pass, that you should turn fortified cities into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field, and like tender grass, like grass of the housetops, on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. But I know you're sitting down, and you're going out, and you're coming in, and you're raging against me because you have raged against me, and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. And this shall be the sign for you this year, eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs of the same. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards, and eat their fruit, and the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there, or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it, By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David.
0: Okay, great. So what kind of themes do you guys see emerging from that very long speech of God through Isaiah?
2: Someone says God's power and holiness over the puny accomplishments.
0: Yeah. And God's gifts to us is what He provided sure hmm And the I don't know if you have ever read the last few chapters of Job, but there's some speeches like that in Job of like God's power, and so there's there's something about that, like God here, God shows up at the end of Job, and God is showing up here, and it, again, He's mocking. Um, he's mocking uh, Assyria. They think they're really powerful, and they're not. And God is going to bring them down and send them home. And so that's pretty strong language where he puts the, the bit in their mouth and the hook in their nose. They're like a horse, right? He's just going to lead them. They're not strong or powerful. In this, in the text, he gives a sign to Hezekiah. And I, you're reading from the NASB, and a ESV. ESV. Not i favorite. Verse 29. Uh, verse 29. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Verse 29 in the NIV specifies that that's a promise to Hezekiah. And so perhaps Hezekiah's name isn't in the original text because the ESV is usually more literal. But that, verses 29 to 31, are a promise to Hezekiah um, that God will things will come back to normal in Jerusalem, but it's not going to come back to normal right away. It's going to take three years. So the first year you'll gather things, second year you'll gather again, and then the third year you can plant. So that's kind of hard news too, right? (laughs) I'm not going to fix everything right away. It's going to be a slow return to normal, um, but it is going to happen and then again his final prophecy that um, the Assyrians will not conquer Jerusalem and that is the second time he said that through Isaiah but that's very clear and all Hezekiah needs to do is just to be faithful to the fact that Yahweh is God Yahweh is greater than the Assyrians and the Assyrian gods Um, and finally in the very end of this um, we see God act and God acts in a really interesting way that night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 Assyrians in the camp. And then the people got up the next morning, they were, all, all there were were dead bodies. Now, that's pretty miraculous. And interestingly, in the Assyrian annals, the death of the 185,000 is not recorded. <laughs> so that's only recorded in the Hebrew text. Um, but what happens in the Assyrian annals is that for some reason Sennacherib leaves without conquering Jerusalem Mm. and there's no explanation of why that's really unusual and um, something happens that makes him leave and so it makes this this believable um, some people think it might have been a natural cause. Like I read one article that suggested it was like a plague from mice bites. Um, but uh, something happened that they all died, and they couldn't bite and they left. Um, and, we, and again, the scriptures explain what that was, but the Assyrians do not get admit to that.
1: We're not told how many. Is it? number is total army
0: was. No, we aren't told that and so some they people are like, wow, like that's a lot of people. So I don't know, there's all that back and forth on it, but they did leave and so something had to have happened. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So that that made them because they just didn't do that. They, you know, scorched to earth everywhere they went. Yeah. Um and so he, so again the king of Assyria returns to Nineveh and he stays there and then um The final prophecy, where am I, 34, 35? Oh, I'm missing that page. Huh, I'm gonna have to rely on the ESV. I'm missing my page. Oh no, there it is, okay. 37, one day while he was worshiping in the temple of his God, Nisroch, his sons Adramelech and Shirazer killed him with a sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarah Hadin, his son, succeeded him as king. Now, this happened a lot later. This didn't happen right away. He went back. He continued to do his thing. And it was 681 B.C. when the final prophecy of the Lord um, what happened. So that's probably about 20 years later um, where he got his just desserts. But, again, this is a long-term prophecy. And um, God is in control of that um, and when that happens. Um, And again, that contrasts with Hezekiah as we move into the next section in our final chapter, which is chapter 20, where Hezekiah um, is is dying. He's dying, and we don't know why, um, but... But I think it's a very funny scene, so I'm going to read it. So, Hezekiah became ill. He was at the point of death. And the pros- prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz, went into him and said, This is what the Lord says. Put your house in order because you're going to die. You will not recover. I thought, well, that's not a very fun guest. You don't want your pastor coming over and uh, giving you that word. Um, <laughs> so, he- Hezekiah didn't like that word. He wasn't going to accept it. And so, in verse 2, um, he petitions God again. And this is a very different Different petition than the one we see in chapter nineteen, because it's much more focused on Hezekiah and not on God's glory. So he, he says, Remember, Lord, how I have walked faithfully walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes and he weeps bitterly. And so, again, this is a much more self-serving petition, but the Lord hears him, and um, the Lord answers his prayer. Um, So, again, I don't know if we have to always get it right. Um, God is merciful. And so, before Isaiah had left, the word of the Lord came to him. Go back and tell Hezekiah, the ruler of my people, this is what the Lord, the God of your father, David, says. I've heard your prayer, and I've seen your tears, and I will heal you. And on the third day from now, you'll go up to the temple of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you in the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend the city for my sake and the sake of my servant David. So it seems like this illness of Hezekiah is happening before Sennacherib has left, which is interesting. So again, I don't know how these events coincide, but it seems like um, there's still some risk from Sennacherib when he's sick. And then this promise comes uh, again that he will be healed and that they will be delivered. And Hezekiah, uh, through Isaiah, is instructed um, to make a poultice, um, or his people are instructed to make a poultice of figs, and he's healed. We don't know how that happens. Um, and in verse eight, uh, Hezekiah asks. In verse eight, Hezekiah asks for a sign. And this is really interesting, because a lot of people have criticized Hezekiah for asking for a sign. But so I want to just take a, a little a moment and read Isaiah 7, 10 to 12. And in Isaiah, uh, Hezekiah's father was given the opportunity to ask for a sign. And so in verse uh, chapter 7, verses 10 to 12, Isaiah goes to visit Ahaz. And he says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign whether it's in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Ahaz says, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And so actually not asking for a sign in Ahaz's case demonstrated a lack of faith. Um, So again, don't don't interpret Hezekiah's asking for a sign as a lack of faith. Um, And it seems like God is pleased. He's asking for a sign and is offering to give him one. And so... Um, Isaiah answered, This is the Lord's sign to you that the Lord will do what he's promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or shall it go back ten steps? And I think both of them are hard to move a shadow forward ten steps <laughs> and backwards. But I, Hezekiah chooses have it go back and the shadow goes backwards and Ahaz is assured of God's uh, faithfulness um, in delivering him. Okay. Alright, so then we get to the more difficult part of the story of Hezekiah. And that is the final segment, in verse, starting in verse 12. And so, he- I'm just looking at time. So Hezekiah, at this point, we know he's been very faithful to God. He's trusted God. He's prayed to God. And now, something very strange happens. And Hezekiah gets better. He's starting to get better. And it seems like people far away have heard of his illness. And they're coming to, like honor him and they're sending letters and a gift and so they're coming from Beladan king of Babylon and so they show up and they give uh, Hezekiah their gifts and their letters and then Hezekiah receives them and then he decides to give them a tour. And so in verse um, 13, it says that he shows them all that was in his storehouse the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his armory, everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. And then they go, and then Isaiah shows up. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. He he gives these guys a really good tour. And then in verse 14, Isaiah comes up to Hezekiah, and he's like, Isaiah's not a dumb prophet, he's a smart prophet, so he's not just randomly asking these questions. So, yeah, he so he says, What did those men say and where did they come from? And then Hezekiah only answers one question: <laughs> from a distant land. They came from Babylon. And then the prophet Asked again, what did they see in your palace? And Hezekiah says, they saw everything. There's nothing among the treasures that I did not show them. And then Isaiah, Isaiah gives a word of judgment to Hezekiah. Hear the word of the Lord. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, Who will be warned to you will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon so this is a a really hard word that Hezekiah receives from Isaiah Um, and he so the the question and if you read commentators um, people ask the question did Hezekiah showing the Babylonians cause the judgment or was it just a really good opportunity to tell him what was going to happen? And that we don't know. So it could have been that Hezekiah, this was going to happen anyways, and, but this was just a great opportunity. Like, you've shown them, this is a, they're going to take it. Or, Hezekiah, you were proud. You were proud of your stuff, and so all the kingdom is lost. So let's vote. Not that we, our vote will matter to the Lord. There's not, we don't know. But who would, who thinks that this is was going to happen anyways, and it's just a good opportunity for Isaiah to tell him what's going to happen? And who thinks Hezekiah, this is a judgment on Hezekiah? So do you guys think it's a judgment? I'm going with that it was a good opportunity. That's because I think God is not going to judge a whole nation because Hezekiah... Gave a tour. That's just my feeling, but again, nobody knows. So <laughs> there you go. But this tour does become the opportunity for God to reveal the future of, of what's going to happen. And again, this is a long-term prophecy because this doesn't happen for another hundred years. So it, again, it's it's not something that it happens in 580, 587 B.C. Um, that the Babylonians come. A good
1: reminder that we ask God for things like we want now, we expect it to I mean, yeah. this
0: time totally out of my watch. Yeah, yeah, we don't know. Now, Hezekiah has a really interesting response to this word from Isaiah, which again causes more controversy. So this is how Hezekiah responds. He says in verse 19, the word of the Lord you have spoken is good. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? <laughs> this is not so bad. Uh, so again, there's three possible ways interpreters look at this. First is Hezekiah's answer like self-serving, like I'm, he's smug. Like, hey, this isn't going to affect me. It's way after I die, so what's the big deal? Uh, that to me seems uh, implausible because Hezekiah obviously loved his people and he served his people in the Lord. The second um, um, one is that he's just grateful that it's going to be delayed, that that is that Judah will have some more time, um, that he'll have time, that Judah will have time, um, that there's, he's spared from seeing such a terrible thing happening. And uh, the third thing is that he—it's both of those—he accepts the inevitability of judgment. Yeah, we have not been a faithful people. I get it. We're going to be judged, but I am grateful. It's not until later on. So those are some possible Wait, responses. What
2: the fact that he co-reigned with with Manessa for 10 years and he saw the trajectory of Manessa's life. Yeah, his, m-
0: maybe he saw his son and he kind of knew things were going to get worse. Yeah, that could yeah, be possible.
2: Maybe the, the illness
1: he had at the beginning of chapter 20 caused some brain issues and now he's
0: just <laughs> Maybe, maybe, head. yeah. So it looks like it was a boil, so then would a boil cause a brain issue? Yeah, good point. Um, but uh, <laughs> but this, this isn't, the last chapter seems to take a slight turn on portraying Hezekiah as positively as the first chapter, uh, which is interesting because the first chapter really does sum up the biblical story of Hezekiah. But Hezekiah in the end is not a hero either. And I always say this to everyone, like, there's no heroes in the Bible. The only hero is Jesus. And so we're, God is not uncomfortable with sharing our faults. <laughs> God is quite comfortable with all the the whatever leaders of the Bible having lots of faults that I'm glad my name is not written in there. Let's just say that. <laughs> yes? Our
1: difficulty in dealing with our fine mind. Yeah, yeah. We know we're not going to be free to see infinitely until our return. Mm-hmm. And so it's giving us a
0: message we only look at the now. Yeah, yeah. And it did de- want results for now. And that was things
1: the guy, he was always trying to get the positive that
0: we wasn't thinking long term. Yeah, yeah. And I think there's something about like the fact that we aren't the we aren't the hero and i think that helps me when i look at christian leaders who fail um i just know that's part of the story of the people of god that nobody uh nobody follows god totally and faithfully that people have gaps and cracks and sin and god again is quite comfortable with exposing that and so right now you can let just read the news and see all kinds of pastors sins exposed right it's that's the good thing and the bad thing about social media but it is good in some ways because it reminds us of our need to really cling to god and to be faithful um to what god calls us to i'm not
1: bigger than i will say i'm
0: really
1: thankful that as <laughs> he study the bible you to Sometimes everybody seems so great and we can never get there, we can never have
0: that perfect walk with faith. And so you stumble and fall and think, What's wrong with me? Why can't I do it? Mm-hmm. And, but as you study, you realize there are no heroes, only mm-hmm. Jesus and how whatever we know mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. what? gets drunk. And then you know all these people do all these crazy things and they're like, hey, alright, there's still a place for
2: them. There can still be a place for me. Yeah, okay. yeah. Like so children's programs are heroes of the Bible. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, in verse 20 it says all the other events of Hezekiah's reign, all his achievements, how he made the pool and the tunnel by which he brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Hezekiah rested with his ancestors, and Manasseh his son succeeded him as king. And I, my last chair is Hezekiah's tunnel, which still exists. Uh, It's called Gihon Spring, and it was Jerusalem's main water source up until the 20th century. So that's pretty amazing. His tunnel lasted for 1,700 years. So alone, his tunnel work was amazing. I'm sure he had great engineers, Um, but um, that's a pretty amazing uh, feat. And so his tunnel work is described in second chronicles so if you want to read about hezekiah's tunnels um you can read it there but before we close i just want to review some of the historical information i do have time to review that so again these events as i said are found in the in the Rassim cylinder which is in the british museum so if you ever get to the british museum go look it up and um and it, it records in there that hezekiah defeated the philistines um, it mentions the siege against Hezekiah in in Judah, and they. This is how they described Hezekiah the Judean. I imprisoned him like a bird in a cage, and he couldn't get out. <laughs> so, and uh, and then uh, the Assyrians said they gave all. Uh, Hezekiah's stuff, all the Judean stuff to the Philistines. So they took it away, gave it to the Philistines. That's what they say in the Barassam Cylinder. Um, in Second Chronicles 32, 1 to 23, it's a much shorter account of what we see in Kings. It leaves out Hezekiah's unsuccessful attempt to buy off the Assyrian king because the chroniclers didn't want to show the faults of the kings as much as the writer of Kings did. And so that is left out. Um, But it adds details like um, building works that Hezekiah did, repairing of the temple that aren't in Kings. And then in Isaiah 36 to 37, there's also quite a long section. Again, it doesn't talk about buying off Sennacherib, but it's also very similar. So interesting, Kings is the only one to record that very iffy decision of Hezekiah to do. Um, It doesn't... um, In in the Assyrian count, again, it doesn't talk about the initial payment to Sennacherib, maybe because they didn't honor it, so they don't mention it. Um, It talks about... um, Uh, It doesn't refer to how the siege ends, but it does imply that Hezekiah continued to pay tribute um, to the king. And remember, the overall purpose of the Assyrian text was to glorify the king of Assyria, so Sennacherib, and the gods of security, and to secure loyal subjects. So they're going to tell their story from the perspective of, you should do what we think, because look at Hezekiah, the bird in the cage. Uh, so they, they're they giving this uh, picture in the Rassam cylinder of this ofen- a relentless effectiveness of these Syrian kings. And the Book of Kings is more concerned about how, explaining what the God of Israel is doing. That's its concern. And what difference it makes that Hezekiah trusts in him and why the uh, Israelites, or the Judites don't go into exile. They don't go into exile because their God saved them. And- So they have these two different perspectives, but it's interesting to see uh, how they mesh, even if they have a different point of view. Um, The chronicler's concern is more about um, avoiding mentioning the Judean king's failures because they they want them to look good because they're telling the story after they've gone to Babylon, and so they want to remember the good old days. Um, And Isaiah, again, is is concerned mostly with... um, uh, Hezekiah trusting God, and he, and he wants people to know that. Um, but each of these pieces of, of each chronicles and the Rosam cylinder and kings, they are all ideologically loaded. Uh, they're not neutral history. They're history uh, with a point of view. They're artistically constructed. They're not focused on the historical point. They're they're focused again on um, trying through art and through narrative to tell us a story about either the God of Israel or the God of the Assyrians. Um, So I I, wondered if anyone had any comments or questions at this point as we get near the end. Looks like the people online are having a conversation about government. That's interesting. Just at the end. Oh, just at the end? <laughs> they pretty good. Oh, OK. They talked to us. Now they're just getting a little off. So, is it, so does anyone have any questions or comments? Yeah? Um, in a he
1: seems like uh, concerned about God's glory and that, that kind of thing there. Um, I just got thinking about how when we see other people that seem to be profane, not fame, and like, exploring, are we supposed to necessarily confront that? Like, uh, like uh, when, when do we, when do we Can uh, yeah. see that as a question that concern? How concerned should we be when other people are um,
0: offending God? Basically? That's a great question. What are you yeah, so the question is, how? when Hezekiah was concerned about God's name being profaned, um, he was grieving in the temple about that, how concerned should we be about that? Um, and that I think is really an interesting question and I think it's an important one because when we I think it's easy in these times where Christians seem to be a little bit beleaguered in the West, where it's a little bit challenging to be a Christian, it is easier to become more concerned about how it's affecting us than how it's affecting God, right? How God's, how our name is being profaned rather than how God's name is being profaned. And I think we can grieve as much when we see a pastor who took advantage of a congregant that is profaning God's name. Um, people who you know refuse to acknowledge God are also profaning God's name. But, but I think that is something that that's a good point that is important for us to be concerned about and bring to prayer. And then, obviously, at, at times, to bring to someone. And so, again, if we see a Christian leader that we think is profaning God's name, I think that's a call of ours to go speak to that person rather than cover it up. That was not what God certainly did in the Scriptures. If it's a person who's not a follower of Jesus, I think we really need... God's wisdom and timing for that. When is the right time uh, to do that, and how do we do it in a way that? um, Why would we? Why do we do it? Um, How does that impact how people think about God? So I think of something like the U.S. In the U.S., it's very polarized. There's still a lot of Christians. The Christians have a lot of powerful voices. And I don't know if you've noticed here in Canada, but the more Christians in the southern U.S. Talk. The more difficult it is for Canadians to talk about God, right? And so I think again we have to think about that. Like, if I speak, is this going to give people an opportunity to hear the good news of Jesus and to honor God, or is it going to further lead to the dishonor of God? And that's not an easy—that's not an easy decision to make.
1: Uh, along that line, First uh, Peter three fifteen tells us that when we're asked to give account to our belief, we're to do it with gentleness and respect. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think that would sort of you know, I think you'd alienate somebody if you if they got to know you and you wouldn't know that, and they know that you'd be against that use of, of God's name mm-hmm. that way, um, they might be Consider it and I mean that's, that has happened. To yeah. Really. Mm-hmm. yeah, to do it kindly I, I'm not sure that I would tell somebody that I don't know I'm not yeah. you're I think
0: you Yeah, and I think like a couple things I'd say too, like um, yeah, gentleness and if you look at the Apostle Paul, one of the things the Apostle Paul does, he's in living in this Greco Roman world where there's lots of other gods where people don't respect the God of Israel. And he's actually teaching the people of God to live a respectful life in their culture so that they can share Jesus. And so he only overturns a few things that the people would practice. Like He, he kind of tells them, like, live quiet lives and work with your hands and, and don't make a big stir. But the, the people of God in the New Testament made a big stir by doing good works, by loving one another, by... Um, you know, caring for the sick and rescuing babies and they quietly went about and they said they overturned the Roman Empire, basically not by political action, but by uh, personal action. Um, so again, if you, I'm not saying some people aren't called to political action, but if you are, you, you do need to be as wise as a serpent, as gentle as a dove, as Jesus said in our culture. yeah. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of C.A. Church.